September 14th, 2017. American teacher living on St. Thomas in the US Virgin Islands, Hannah Up, vanishes during a series of strong hurricanes that hit the island. Hannah had previously been diagnosed with dissociative fugue, a rare psychological condition that impacts memory and personal identity. Hannah has been missing for five years. If you have information on the disappearance of Hannah Up, please call 911 or 340 474 9774. Primary sources for this episode include How a Young Woman Lost Her Identity by Rachel Aviv for The New Yorker, A&E, Ranker, Medium and The Virgin Islands Daily News. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 149 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Creeping up on that 150 feels like yesterday I did the episode 100, although that was probably a year ago, um, which makes sense, 50 episodes. Um, So I hope you're all doing well and you enjoyed the MH370 episodes. Thank you again to Marissa. Um, It's such a busy time of year for me, Um, my business. Everyone wants everything, not only for December, but also January because Christmas is coming up and everyone shuts down for like weeks at a time because it's summer here over Christmas and people generally take off like before Christmas to like January 5th or so. Uh, So it's all pretty hectic and I've also taken a full-time job with one of my clients, what is essentially a full-time job. It's an amazing opportunity for me and I worked really hard for it. So time management in the new year has to be like a priority for me to be able to continue to do the podcast and as much research as I do as well as to manage all that but it's all good news for me. The only bad news is that you may have noticed that I regularly lose my voice. Now this is a risk with having your thyroid removed because your laryngeal nerves run alongside your thyroid and mine was massive and mine were all caught up in it for the better part of two years because it was six times the size of a normal one. And I've noticed that since surgery, I regularly lose my voice. I have issues with projection and this is all part and parcel of the fact that I had my throat slashed open in February and they have to clip your laryngeal nerves back in order to remove the thyroid and it was very complicated because of the size of it and they've kind of just been a bit damaged from it all. If that annoys you, well, try living with it when your voice just cuts out all the time. I can't project my voice like I used to when I have to rest it a lot more. But trust me, it's um, a small price to pay for feeling, you know, better and not having the symptoms that I was suffering with for a long time. Um, And you get that kind of bit of that Sophia Bush raspy voice action uh so don't ever bring it up again or ask me why that's the only time I'm kind of bringing it up again because you know I'm living with it <laughs> so uh welcome to new patron Layla welcome on board now this is a patron location request for patron Jody. now she's an Aussie patron and when she messaged me When I messaged her to say welcome to the Patreon uh, about six months ago or so, she messaged back saying that she was from a town called Parks in central western New South Wales, the state above my state in Australia, 
and I may not know it. And I said, not only do I know it, but I've been there before. Um, and I have strong memories of it because when we used to travel up to Sydney with my dad to visit his now deceased aunt every summer, my dad would make a point to stop at a different country town because he's a massive lover of Australian country towns and supporting them. And he'd pick a different one each time. So one particular year we stopped at Parks because he wanted to show me a what's called The Dish, which an Australian movie was made, which is what the town is famous for. And it played an important role, this satellite dish, in the broadcasting of Man Walking on the Moon. So that's Australia's like claim to fame with that and the only one we have. Um, so he took me to The Dish and we stayed in a motel and it was about 45 degrees. It is the driest place ever. It's nowhere near the coast. Um, and it's a very kind of... Uh, quintessential Australian country town. So I have I have been there and I have breathed that parks air. Jody. Jody loves animals. She's got three dogs. She's got horses. Uh, and when she kind of when I said what's your case request or location request, she said anything that involves the ocean. Now I don't know if that's because she probably doesn't get to go to the ocean or see it very often. Um, but I decided to do Hannah Upp's case and I realised that the ocean is actually so central to this case. Initially, when I decided to assign it to Jodie's episode, it was because she went missing from an island. But as we get into it, you'll realise that the ocean may play a role in finding uh, Hannah for a number of reasons. Now, I've had Hannah Upp's name on my list since the early days of starting this podcast, like the first weeks. However, I don't know how she ended up on my list because there's barely any coverage of Hannah. To this day, the best piece of information on Hannah's case is a really long form article that I've relied on heavily for this episode by The New Yorker, by a brilliant writer called Rachel Aviv. She wrote it the year after Hannah went missing in 2018. And that is called How a Young Woman Lost Her Identity. Now, I will refer to that throughout because it is a fascinating piece that sheds so much light on so many facets of this case. It's also the only one that paints Hannah as kind of an individual with a life outside of her disappearance, which, you know, we're fans of here. It was so profound and detailed and well-researched. It left my head spinning at times, and I've read it a couple of times over the years where I've gone to do Hannah's case and then held back on it, but now's the time. The only issue is the article jumps back and forth in chronology, which makes it a little bit confusing. So for this episode, I've set out Hannah's story chronologically to make it more easier to follow. This case and Hannah's disappearance is fascinating, not only for what Hannah achieved in her 32 short years, and hopefully she's still out there, but for the many facets that it brings up. And as we get into it, you'll realise that Hannah is unique to anybody else that we've covered on this podcast for a number of different reasons. She suffered from a very unique, rare psychological disorder. So let's start at the beginning. Who is Hannah Up? And this will be a two-parter because it was initially meant to be a one-parter, but as I got into it, I just realised there's too much that can't be left out. Hannah Up, which is spelt U-double-P, is an American teacher who vanished while working on the US Virgin Islands on the island of St Thomas in 2017. At the time she disappeared, she was 32, despite some mainstream sources like A&E not even bothering to 
double check her age and putting it as 23, which as we'll get into it, you'll realise that that's impossible because it would mean she was a teacher when she was 14 years old. If alive today, Hannah would be 38 years old. Um, So Hannah's childhood is something that's a bit foreign to me, but a lot of you might have experienced or be raising your kids that way and each to their own. Um, Hannah grew up with quite religious parents. Um, They were pastors, both of them. Her mother is Barbara Bellis, which is now her surname, and her dad, David Arp, um, when she was growing up, taught at various seminaries, uh, particularly in the state of Oregon. And Hannah spent a lot of her time, like her childhood and adolescence, in what's called Japanese American churches, according to the New Yorker, particularly in Oregon. Now, the family are white Americans, but there's a particular interest in the family in relation to Japan. Hannah's mom, Barbara, is fluent in Japanese and had taught in Japan at one point in her life. So that's how that comes into play. Now, basically to make it a bit more concise than the New Yorker, David was more the hardline religious type of the family, as they refer to it, quote, the man of the one book, unquote. Now, <clears throat> I can't really tell you at what what exact kind of um, kind of sect of Christianity or so he fell into. I'm not sure if it was Pentecostal or something like that. Kind of sounds like it to me. Uh, whereas Barbara was a bit more fluid David to this day is, you know, uh, set in stone with his beliefs and the New Yorker kind of explains a few of his opinions which are that nobody is gay and people who are deviants and, you know, uh, that's important to keep in mind as we get into um, Hannah's story, I believe. Now, when Hannah was 15, uh, Barbara filed for divorce from David which is a very formative time for, you know, when you're a teenager and trying to get through school for your parents to split and have such a such a massive upheaval in your life. And Barbara essentially stopped speaking to David and uh, it was quite adversarial. And David, as a result, after the divorce, he moved overseas and he decided to spend, you know, the rest of his life and his working life spreading the word of God across large swaths of the earth, uh, the Pacific, the South Pacific, India, Africa, Central America, uh, Europe, there's a massive list of different countries. And when the New Yorker wrote this piece, Rachel Aviv tracked David down. He was living in the Philippines in a remote village uh, doing just that. Now, Barbara ended up moving to a Quaker retreat in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm not going to get into the different sex. I don't know a whole lot about Quakerism, um, to be honest. They're quite kind of strict in their beliefs. All my connection is to Quakerism is that my name, Felicity, was a Quaker name for a very long time. It was also a word before it was a name uh, because they often have names like charity and, you know, joy and things like that. And Felicity means happiness, (laughs) believe it or not, you know. So Hannah's brother, Hannah had a brother called Dan or does, and he's a Navy man. And he was often stationed overseas, including in Japan at one point. To describe Hannah up, she's a very attractive girl, uh, which if you believe that that's why the media covers certain cases and not others, you would question why Hannah didn't get more coverage. So that's why I am so grateful to the New Yorker for not only covering it, but doing this huge investigation into it, the likes of which you just can't find anywhere else. Hannah was five foot seven. 
She had light brown hair, but in some photos of her, she's got very blonde highlights. I'm not sure how it was at the time that she went missing, but considering she'd been living on an island in the sun, her hair looks like the type that would kind of lighten in the sun naturally. She's got brown eyes and she's kind of got quite a like athletic, tall, lean figure. To compare her to someone, I guess the only person that really stood out to me when I was looking at pictures of Hannah is Jennifer Kessie, who's quite a well-known missing person in the United States who went missing from Florida. Uh, They've got kind of that kind of strong, angular, uh, almost Nordic look about them. Now, if you follow the Myers-Briggs technique and know what your Myers-Briggs, I guess, acronym is. Uh, According to the New Yorker, Hannah was an ENFP, which is an extroverted, uh, intuitive feeling perceiving. Now, this is basically a personality type that you can take a free one online if you want to. I am, I only share one of those, which is feeling with Hannah. I'm an INFJ, which are pretty much the most neurotic, (laughs) internalized, uh, semi-demented types. Um, But Hannah's, according to the New Yorker, shows, quote, a personality type that describes exuberant idealists looking for deeper meaning and connection, unquote. So Hannah stayed with her mum until she was due to attend college when she became, you know, an adult for all intents and purposes. And she attended a university, which is in Pennsylvania. um, And it's called, I believe, it's probably spelled it's probably pronounced Bryn more, but I actually couldn't find a uh, pronunciation of it, even though I went off and looked at its website and everything. Um, it's a really beautiful university looking at it. Uh, it's actually an all women's school and it's, a, it's considered like a liberal arts college. They have a very revered psychology department, according to what I could find on the university. Um, and yeah, they kind of try to rival the Ivy League. They've always kept themselves all women's because traditionally the Ivy League colleges were all men. So Bryn Mawr became all women as kind of direct competition, offering a similar level of education to Ivy League. And when she started at the college, Hannah was described by the New Yorker as a creationist. So she still was within her beliefs that she grew up with. However, really, when you read about Hannah, it's clear that she had friends from all kinds of faiths. She lived life how kind of she wanted to, despite maybe having to push down a lot of who she was around her family. Um, and she was pretty much open to discussing with anyone anything. Um, and she didn't ram it down your throat or anything like that. Um, so when she started at the college, she joined the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is an evangelical campus ministry. Um, and it really does seem that Hannah was in a bit of an internal war with her beliefs at this stage, which is totally normal as you leave home and you start to have new experiences when I started researching this in earnest, I thought me and Hannah have nothing in common. Although we were pretty much like similar ages, she's a few years older than me. But then as happens with every case that you look into, it's important to find those commonalities and suddenly they pop up and you're like, yeah, all of us are more similar to what a lot of 
people who create division and want division want us to believe. Um, so her, the New Yorker spoke to a friend of hers who's an Indian girl. She was born and raised Hindu and her name's Piali. And she spoke about how she and Hannah once had a conversation where Piali asked Hannah at university, do you think I'm going to hell? Because she wanted to know what Hannah's opinion was from her Christian beliefs about Hinduism. And she told Rachel Aviv from The New Yorker that when she asked Rachel, um, Hannah this question, Hannah started crying. She said, quote, Hannah lost it. She couldn't answer the question, whereas another person might try to defend her beliefs. Hannah is the type of person who would take a question like that and turn it on herself and think about it and come out the other end being a totally different person. She knew she was loving and open-hearted, but beyond that, I think she had zero idea of who she actually was. She wanted to give herself over to someone or some idea, unquote. Now, Hannah's friends, when Rachel spoke to different ones, all used the same terminology, five of them. And I know it sounds cliche, but I think in this instance, they actually meant it. They said Hannah lit up a room. A friend told Rachel, quote, Everyone you talk to is going to say she is their closest friend. She has no barriers. She was raised to trust and care for everyone, and she did, unquote. And really the fact that she went on to become a very passionate teacher really speaks to that as well. So in the spring of her sophomore year, which I think is your second year in America in college, because I think it's freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, is that right? Because you do four years of college. It's totally different to here. Barbara talked to the New Yorker about how Hannah had caught her crying. Uh, She had gone to a talk given by a United Methodist minister, uh, Beth Stroud, who had been defrocked after telling a congregation that she was in a relationship with a woman. And Hannah was upset by this because she was troubled that she thought that she was starting to come to the realisation that her faith had cruel aspects to it that if you didn't fit this this certain mould of what was to be expected, um, you were out, you were gone. The word defrocked is, like, it's it's a horrible word anyway. Like, yeah, it makes no sense. And it may not surprise you and it didn't surprise me to get to this point in the New Yorker piece that although it seems that this was a one-off because Hannah had casually dated men, before and after, by her junior year, which I guess she would have been about 21 years old, uh, Hannah had started like casually dating a woman, which is probably not ideal for her parents. And seemingly from what her friends have said, she really had to hide that side of herself. Now, I'm not going to, I only share what I'm comfortable with sharing on this podcast, but I had a similar experience, albeit a bit younger than Hannah. I lived with the girl um and I was with her for two years and um I unlike Hannah my mum's kind of a free spirit um doesn't really care she always had gay friends one of her best friends when I was growing up was trans she's now past Shah um and we it was all very like kind of just normal, these people are mum's friends and that's the end of that. So my mum was totally fine. My friends all loved her. Uh, My dad did not talk to me for two years, um, which is such a long time ago. I don't get into it with people. I don't care anymore. He is who he is and I don't expect him and didn't really expect him at the time to understand. Um, Ultimately, we did not stay together because I am 
heterosexual and it was pretty obvious almost the whole way through the relationship that that was the case and I very much got the fact that she was my best friend and became my best friend and my biggest supporter kind of wrapped up in that and then over time things change um, and unfortunately which has been to my detriment a lot over the years um, I like men in that way and it's I've never been with a woman before or since I was only 18 to 20 and this is going on <laughs> 20 years ago now and we stayed friends and she was kind of like I felt bad that I may have wasted her time um, and you know, for what was essentially a phase and she kind of said, yeah, I knew that you weren't, but, you know, I loved you the same. And I still pop in, I still like run into her from time to time and my mum loved her. Um, my dad has never acknowledged the fact that I had that relationship, um, has acknowledged my since relationships with men, um, but not that one, not the one like that went for two years where he didn't talk to me, but you know, whatever, like he's in his seventies and I don't expect him to change. Cause you know, he was born in like the late 1940s and <laughs> he's not like a sensitive new age guy type, but I am different to Hannah other than the fact that I don't want to share more than that. Um, in the sense that i I was always kind of, oh, well, if you don't accept me, I'll just get out of my life, <laughs> you know, and I didn't have that kind of Christian um, kind of guilt associated with a lot of different sects of different religions. Um, so I was kind of like, all right, well, if you don't want to talk to me, that's okay. It hurt a little bit at the time, um, but what can you do? It was such a long time ago and dad's kind of made up for it since, I suppose, in his own way. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the end of that. But for Hannah, it was a different story because Hannah's mum was kind of living in like a Quaker community at the time. And once a year, Hannah would visit her dad wherever he was working, be it Africa or the South Pacific or, or, you know, South America. And she would head there for a time before the new school year started, which is September for you guys in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And, her friend Hannah Wood would talk to the New Yorker about um, Hannah Up and how it must have been for Hannah to, when she would visit her parents, to, quote, swallow a part of herself down while she was travelling. Um, but despite this, Hannah always spoke really highly of both her parents and her dad. Um, her friend said, her friends described to Rachel Aviv from the New Yorker that Hannah lived in Hannah Land um, and her friend Amy told Rachel, quote, she lives in a separate place where there are butterflies and birds and they follow her around. Everything is good and everyone is happy and there's no conflict ever. And pushing down that emotion brought up a lot for me, which at the end of part one, I'll kind of talk a little bit about something else kind of in my life um, and how I've seen this firsthand and how I know it's 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 never good. It's not good to be a histrionic um you know, just out there constantly with your emotions. But it's also not good to be a stone either for a number of reasons. Uh, and, you know, from my personal experience, neurologically, I don't believe it's good. So around this time, um, Hannah started experiencing psychological changes. She would sleep for days at a time and between these sleeping episodes, she would wander seemingly. And by this point, she was living in New York City, which is probably not a good place to just be wandering 
around late at night, particularly considering she was working in the borough of Harlem, which is can be quite dangerous, although New York can be dangerous anywhere, uh, especially now. And she'd lose track of time and she would be conscious of the fact that she'd lost track of time, but she couldn't tell you what she was doing. So at one time, she didn't know what had happened and she'd been wandering, it seems, for a couple of days. And she looked at her bank transactions to try to piece together where she'd been. And in her bank transaction, she'd been to a movie cinema in Times Square and she'd purchased it with her card and gone to see the movie and she had no recollection of going to that cinema, seeing that movie or anything, which is which is very scary. One of my biggest fears is not the danger of someone else doing something to me. It's the mind, how it works, and your mind fighting against you, being your enemy. And I've always just felt immense empathy for people who have uh, developed, you know, motor neuron disease or MS or epilepsy or... Um, narcolepsy or anything where your mind suddenly goes in it starts battling you and you you kind of meant to think that you and you and your mind are the same thing this is very kind of existential and things like that um but Hannah's experience will show that you can be like your mind can work against you So according to the New Yorker, quote, during the weeks that Hannah spent wandering, her family believes that she understood on some level that people were searching for her. She categorised her recollections of that time as just being continually roaming. This is what her brother Dan said. We think that maybe she had this sense that she was being hunted and didn't know why, unquote. So they didn't really know when Hannah would go missing for like days at a time, how she was surviving because she wasn't in her apartment. She'd leave all her things behind and then she'd go wandering out into the big city, which particularly when it's cold can be incredibly dangerous, but also on top of that, other people being a threat to you, um, especially if you're not in your right mind and you can't defend yourself or think rationally about getting help or getting to help. Hannah was into the eco movement and she, she'd done a tour, I believe, about freeganism, which was basically a tour in New York City that showed you how to adopt the freegan movement, which is essentially living off discarded food because shops just throw out so much. And I've actually read about so many people who just live their lives like this and spend nothing on groceries. Now, I don't know how I feel about it like ethically, I guess it's good because they're throwing the stuff out anyway. It makes me sick the amount of waste that shops throw out when there's literally nothing wrong with these things and they could give it to charities and things like that. Now, during the times that Hannah would go off the radar, her family and friends believed that she had remembered consciously things she had learned on this particular tour of New York that told them about freeganism and that that's how she was surviving. She was essentially almost dumpster diving or asking for handouts from shops of things that they were going to dispose of. But Hannah had no recollection of how she was feeding herself or or putting clothes on her back. By September 2008, Hannah was a qualified middle school teacher and she was working at a public school called Thurgood Marshall Academy in Harlem. Now, this was probably... I mean, probably quite a rough area. I know that the public schools uh, can be quite rough, especially in the boroughs like Harlem. And I can imagine 
they don't really go into it in the New Yorker, but I can imagine that Hannah may have felt some apprehension, but I don't know how it works over there in terms of if they just, once you graduate, they place you in your first job or have if you have to apply for the job or something like that. But it is boots on the ground, pretty much like uh, a great way to learn being thrown in the deep end like that in an area like that. And it was her first day of term, September. I want you to keep that in mind because September is very important in this. Uh, in 2008, and Hannah did not show up to her first day of teaching as a middle school teacher in Harlem. Now, she was rooming and had a roommate at the time in New York. And when they were alerted to the fact she hadn't turned up to work, they looked in her room and they found on the floor of her bedroom her purse and within her purse was her wallet, her passport, her metro card and her cell phone. So everything had just been left behind in the purse on the floor of her bedroom and Hannah was not in the apartment and nowhere to be seen. Hannah was reported missing and it actually got quite a lot of local media news and one of the headlines was, quote, teacher 23 disappears into thin air because that's how old Hannah was at the time and that's, I think, where A&E gets confused with the fact that she was 23 when she went missing, which she wasn't, she was 32. Hannah was missing for weeks during this spell and you can imagine how terrified her family would have been. Her family and friends posted over a 1,000 flyers across the entire city on every signpost, in bus stations, in subway stations, everywhere possible. And thankfully, it seems that these do work, this kind of uh, grassroots missing persons campaigns, because the calls that they would get from the public pointing to where Hannah had been or potential tip-offs all came from people who had seen these flyers. So within a couple of weeks, Hannah's mum, Barbara, who had gone to New York from where she was living um, in order to search for her daughter full time, she got a phone call from the NYPD to come into one of their precincts and to view surveillance from an Apple store of a girl that had been caught on surveillance a day or two before. And Barbara went to the precinct and according to the New Yorker, this is what she saw, quote, Barbara watched a woman wearing a sports bra and running shorts, her brown hair pulled into a high ponytail, ascend the staircase in the store. A man stopped her and asked her if she was the missing teacher in the news. Barbara said, quote, I could see her blow off what he was saying and I knew instantly it was her. It was all her. She has this characteristic gesture. It's like, oh, no, no, don't you worry. You know me, I'm fine. Another camera had captured Hannah using one of the store's laptops to log into her Gmail account. She looked at the screen for a second before walking away, unquote. So without knowing what was going on with her daughter's mind, Barbara would have to assume that she's out there and she knows what she's doing because she's logging into her Gmail and she's conscious enough to do that. So the confusion with her friends and family was immense at this point in time, but it was Hannah on the footage. Hannah's family and friends were obviously relieved that she'd been sighted so recently, but they were frightened because they were still trying to find her and she'd seemingly left the Apple store and disappeared into thin air again. Um, and they continued to search everywhere possible, including in public parks, under bridges, anywhere that she could be hiding out or sheltering 
Luckily, this was during September where the weather is not yet getting into the cold. It's coming out of summer because I don't know if Hannah would have survived if it had happened, say, in December or January or February. Two days after the Apple signing, Hannah was again spotted um, by someone. She was spotted in a Starbucks in Soho. Someone called the tip in and police very quickly arrived, but Hannah had left the Starbucks by that point. The police were, they actually seemed to have done a really good job, despite the fact that the NYPD are just overrun with crime. Um, They recorded sightings of her at five different New York sports clubs. Now, these are seemingly gyms. Uh, All of these that she'd attended were near Midtown and she was seen going into them. And the detective working on the case at the time believed that she'd gone to these to shower because maybe, I don't know how it works, but you can use the shower if you're not a member. I, Without money and things like that, I'm just interested how she was getting in because I thought you had to be a member to use showers in gyms, if anyone knows. I've got quite a few listeners in New York, so this would be helpful. Um, in an article at the time that was covering her disappearance, the Times wrote, quote, it was as if the city had simply opened wide and swallowed her whole. By this point, it was going on three weeks since Hannah had disappeared on that first day of the school term and with all these random little sightings and not knowing how she was staying warm, where she was sleeping, what she was eating, your mind would be going crazy. But finally, the police received what would be a crucial tip. The captain of the Staten Island Ferry, which crosses, from my belief, Manhattan to Staten Island, um, according to Sex in the City, um, he was doing his regular run between the two uh, one morning and he saw a woman's body bobbing in the water off this kind of rocky reef outcropping south of the Statue of Liberty and there's a lighthouse that's placed there. Um, And he wasn't sure if this person was dead or alive and so he steered, he, he... basically alerted a rescue boat to go out and to check this woman and to bring her in. And a rescue boat went out and the woman was floating face down, which you would immediately think this is not good. One of the men would later say, I honestly thought she was dead. They dragged her into the rescue boat by her ankles while the other one tried to grab her shoulders. And when they lifted her up and her head up out of the water, she took a massive gasp of air like she'd come to and she began crying, which would be just terrifying for them but also so confusing and imagine how it feels for Hannah. So it was Hannah up in the end and she was taken to hospital on Staten Island and she was treated for dehydration. She had severe sunburn, uh, which appeared she'd been lying for a couple of days on this rocky outcrop just in the direct sun. She also had hypothermia because it seems that between lying on this rocky outcrop for at least the last couple of days, she'd been spending her nights in the water, um, which is just, it's just heartbreaking. Like to lose control of your mind like this is so, it's a massive fear of mine. But when the hospital staff asked what her name was, she was able to say her name was Hannah Up 
and she was able to give them the phone number of her mum, Barbara. She could not tell them anything that had gone on over the last three weeks, but she knew the basics, her name and, you know, um, generally numbers and things like that, which is common in what we'll get into, which is fugue states. Barbara arrived at the hospital quickly and she said that Hannah looked, quote, both sunburned and pale like she'd been pulled behind a boat for three weeks. The first thing she said was, why am I wet, unquote. Friends came to see her and one of her friends, Manuel, who was the roommate who sounded the alarm about her going missing, he said to Rachel Aviv from The New Yorker, quote, she saw me and smiled and said something like, I hope they release me soon because I have to set up my classroom. She clearly didn't get that the last three weeks that she clearly didn't get that three weeks had passed, unquote. So the police obviously arrived to kind of wrap up what the deal was with this and they have to ask some questions because they've run an investigation and Hannah was questioned by police while she was in the hospital bed and she really earnestly tried to answer their questions like what had happened over the last three weeks, where had you eaten, where had you slept, what were you doing? But she just couldn't get that information to come to her. It was just a wash. Her last memory was... The day she went missing in the morning, early in the morning before she was meant to go to her first day of term teaching, she was taking a run in Riverside Park, which is located near what her then apartment was, and then there was no memory after that. Barbara slept next to her daughter's hospital bed, and one night in the middle of the night, Barbara told Rachel Aviv from The New Yorker that Hannah very suddenly jolted awake and she said, quote, I was at a lighthouse, unquote, and then she immediately fell back asleep again. And in the morning, Barbara said, what was what you said in the middle of the night about a lighthouse? Were you sleep talking? And Hannah had no memory of, of the lighthouse or of saying that. Meanwhile, Hannah's brother, Dan, who had come to New York to search for his sister, was trying to piece together what had happened and he went and met with the captain of the Staten Island Ferry who had first seen Hannah bobbing in the water and they were trying to analyse the currents of the Hudson River to determine how Hannah had got where she got and they ultimately came to the conclusion that Hannah had entered the river in Lower Manhattan before the tide made her drift all the way south. She's really lucky she didn't drown. Um, and Hannah, when she got out of hospital, Dan took Hannah and walked her along the different downtown piers to try to jog her memory. And when they got to Pier 40, which is a former marine terminal on the west end of Houston Street, Hannah said, this feels familiar, this area. She remembered, all she remembered was some lights kind of floating on the water, which must have been at night. And she did remember a full moon, which was right when they looked at the moon phase. There had been a full moon in the days preceding her being found. Now, it's it's likely that she spent the night before she was found in the river, which is probably how she ended up with hypothermia and it's just terrible. They said... Her body had severe water immersion, which we actually talked about on the um, Yossi Ginsberg episode, which can be very dangerous over time. Um, and the New Yorker reported, quote, Dan learned that there had been a Japanese floating lantern ceremony on the pier on September 11th to honour the victims of the World Trade Centre attacks. 
As a child, Hannah had danced in an annual Obon festival, which has a floating lantern ceremony, the lights representing the souls of the departed. Barbara said something about that powerful ritual registered, unquote. Now, if you remember, the family has a very strong ties to Japanese culture and I found that very interesting that she would have been drawn to a Japanese floating lantern ceremony, kind of hearkening back to something in her childhood that felt comforting or, or safe. Due to obviously the circumstances, Hannah was sent to a psychiatric unit for testing and they ran various brain scans and, and pet and cat scans, but no physical anomalies were found, which in instances like this with what Hannah ended up seemingly having um, is very common. Um, it seems that it's not neurological, it's psychological, um, and that's the conclusion that the experts came to. Ultimately, after going through this, and they don't just diagnose this lightly, Hannah would ultimately be diagnosed with a condition called dissociative fugue, um, of which we will discuss over part one and part two of this episode. And it is something that is super terrifying to me when your brain is at war suddenly, the onset of something where your brain is at war with yourself um, it's central to this case and something we'll dive into in depth. Now, my first, the first time I ever heard what a fugue state was, was Breaking Bad, back, way back in the day when I was at university. And if you guys remember, because it's my favourite show of all time, really, in the first season, I believe, Walter and Jesse get... Um, kidnapped by Tuco and they go down to Hector Salamanca's house, I think in Mexico, or is it somewhere in New Mexico? I can't remember. And uh, Walter has to come up with a reason when he gets back to his family and work why he disappeared for days at a time. And because he's smart and he works with chemistry and also because he's got cancer and a brain tumour, is it? I kind of remember and I only rewatched it last year, what kind of cancer he's got. He basically formulates this story that he was in a fugue state when he's in hospital and he's kind of being quizzed on it. And um, a couple of the police kind of don't really believe him, uh, but he really kind of bungs it on. Now, this is a very superficial way of looking at a fugue state, but it's very, the last century of people studying fugue states, of which I'm not an expert and never will be, is very deep and very multi-layered and I can't possibly talk about it all on this episode. But the New Yorker did an amazing job of getting the right information um, with various examples and they spoke to different experts and I really couldn't leave much of it out talking to you because it was just so fascinating and uh, different kind of methodologies apply and um, a lot of people don't believe it exists and that it's caused by something else and, you know, a lot of people believe that it does exist but it gets thrown in with uh, dissociative identity disorder which used to be called multiple personality disorder and a lot of people believe that um, you know, it's just a label, but it's 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 rooted in psychological trauma and things like that. So to give you a brief introduction to what dissociative fugue is, the New Yorker explains it like this, quote, a rare condition in which people lose access to their autobiographical memory and personal identity, occasionally adopting a new one and may abruptly embark on a long journey. 
The state is typically triggered by trauma, often sexual or physical abuse, a combat experience or exposure to a natural disaster or by an unbearable internal conflict, unquote. So a lot of it, uh, they believe over about a century or more of studying it since they were first documenting cases they say it's often physical or sexual abuse. Now, that was one of Sigmund Freud's theories, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit. But these days, they kind of see it as a way of coping, much like dissociative identity d- disorder, which is a totally separate thing, where you uh, kind of compartmentalise your mind to deal with the trauma. And usually that is something... Uh, post-traumatic, usually related to post-traumatic stress. They see it in uh, returning war vets, people who have survived natural disasters, you know, like hurricanes or people who survive tsunamis and things like that. Now, one of the first psychiatrists to study what is known as fugue uh, categorised it as, quote, a kind of self-exile. His name is Philip uh, TC is French and he wrote about it in 1901 and he wrote, quote, the legend of the wandering Jew has become a reality proved by numerous observations of patients or unbalanced persons who suffer from an imperious need to walk on and on, unquote. So what he was seeing, and remember this is 121 years ago, was the commonality that people people had who were suffering from it would be they would wander um, and they wouldn't, you know, but you see this a lot in dementia patients who leave care homes of which I have experience in. Um, they they tend to wander and it, it gets tricky. Um, even today, you know, there's a lot of people put kind of trackers on family members who have Alzheimer's or dementia um, in order to be able to track where they are. Now, if you think that's kind of like microchipping a dog, which they actually tossed it up with doing it with Hannah and her condition at one point, but Hannah didn't want it because it's it's kind of infringing on, your, you know, your freedom and your autonomy. Uh, but it's a good idea, you know, if you do suffer from something like this and besides your phone's tracking you all the time. FYI. Um, but understanding of even today, 120 years on, of the condition of fugue is still really limited and society tends to push back on much of this because they can't wrap their heads around it. There's no other way to put it. Uh, the New Yorker spoke to a, a psychiatrist from Columbia University Psychiatry Unit called Aaron Krasner and he said that the reason that it gets such limited study or that people really don't want to believe it is, quote, they challenge a conventional understanding of reality, unquote. So people are just like, that can't happen because it means that I'm not in control of my mind. Um, And that's too much for people to kind of comprehend, which comes into, um, you know, cognitive dissonance and things like that. There are also no medications to target the condition and there's been no breakthroughs in regards to that either. I don't even know where you'd start uh, with trying to to determine that because as we talked about, Hannah had brain scans, multiple different ones, and it doesn't show any anomalies. So the studies into how it affects and what part of the brain it affects and how you could possibly kind of treat that is so complex. Even today, they don't understand 
exactly how to treat bipolar or uh, borderline because borderline can't generally be treated with medication. It's generally treated with something called dialectal behavioral therapy uh, because it's more uh, it's more behavioral and less neurological, um, more mood based. And they kind of put dissociative fugue under that umbrella as well. And this is just my understanding of it. Aaron Krasner went on to say, quote, dissociative fugue is the rare bird of dissociation, but dissociation as a phenomenon is very common. I think as a field, we have not done our due diligence in part because the phenomenon is so frightening. It's terrifying to think that we are all vulnerable to a lapse in selfhood, unquote, which is is spot on. Um, It's a terrifying thought that you could just have this complete lapse. But In a world where dementia and Alzheimer's rates are on the rise, a lot of experts believe it is due to stress and the increased stresses that people of previous generations did not have um, and the effects of technology and stuff on, you know, formative minds. Uh, It is something to very much keep at the forefront of your mind, no pun intended. The concept um, of the dissociative fugue was discussed by Sigmund Freud basically a century ago. Um, He wrote of the concept, but he worked with patients who claimed that they were suffering from fugue states. And when he would do his kind of famous, um, because he was, we talked about uh, Viktor Frankl recently on the Ossie Ginsberg case. We talked a little bit about Alfred Adler and I kind of touched on Sigmund Freud, but I didn't really go into it. And I do actually have a Freud case coming up, which is quite interesting where I'll talk more about his theories. And I, as I said on the Yossi episode, I kind of take bits and pieces I like from their different teachings. There's parts of Adler I really like. There's parts of Freud I like. There's parts of Jung I really like. Um, So I don't discount all of it. But when he would do his, which was new at the time, lay down on the couch and close your eyes and tell me about your mother, which is kind of from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he, when he would kind of have them relaxed and put in this state of almost hypnosis or deep relaxation where um, they would be more open to maybe... Um, persuasion. I don't know. Uh, That's why I don't like hypnosis, but whatever. Um, He said that more often than not, when they would be telling him about their lives, they would start just suddenly talking about an unearthed sexual abuse almost always. And this is why people get confused when they talk about Freud. They say he was obsessed with, you know, sex and dicks and things like that. It's because a lot of his work surrounded patients who would bring this stuff up. So, of course, he's going to focus on that and that's how he ended up talking about you go through your phallic stage, your anal phase, all of that kind of stuff. But he said that they would suddenly have this memory of sexual abuse in their background and he would ultimately conclude in most of his uh, analyses of each of these patients of which he would spend a lot of time with them he concluded that the memories were false, that they were false memories um, for a number of psychological reasons that I can't explain and the New Yorker kind of goes into it um, a little bit more. 
Um, quote, he proposed that unacceptable wishes were repressed into the unconscious and that traces of these resurfaced in people's fantasy lives. Theorists of dissociation disagreed, arguing that some events were so traumatic that afterwards the mind was unable to develop as an integrated whole. The French philosopher and psychologist Pierre Janet, who developed the first formal theory of dissociation in 1889, wrote, personal unity, identity and initiative are not primitive characteristics of psychological life. They are incomplete results acquired with difficulty after long work and they remain very fragile. After Freud's success, Janet's work fell into obscurity, unquote. And that fragmentation of the mind is often the terminology you'll see when you read about borderline personality disorder um, <clears throat> as a post-traumatic way to cope. A lot of people who uh, are diagnosed with that are, um, you know, have had quite tumultuous childhoods, especially in the formative years. Um, yeah. But people you know, like have continued to be studied for dissociative fugue, albeit it is rare, um, over the last hundred years. And the New Yorker explored some of these cases just to show how varying they are and how they don't really fall into a specific gender or age group or, uh, you know, lifestyle or, or someone's past. Um, it's kind of inexplicable. Quote, Cases of dissociation had a whiff of the mystical and doctors tended to stay away from them. Dozens of articles from the turn of the 20th century published in the Times recount miraculous, inexplicable transformations. A Minnesota reverend missing for a month realised that he had travelled across the country and enlisted in the Navy, although never before in his life had he ever gazed on the ocean. A professor thought to have drowned was discovered three years later using a new name and working as a dishwasher. A deacon in New Jersey woke up and realised the room he had occupied for more than a year was strange to him and his Bible was marked with someone else's name. He had been missing for four years. The most famous American fugue patient was Ansel Bourne, a preacher who, in 1887, left his home in Rhode Island with a vague sense that he had fallen from the path of duty. He travelled to Norristown, Pennsylvania, 240 miles away, and opened a shop selling stationery and candy. He went by the name Albert Brown. His neighbours found his behaviour perfectly normal. Two months after leaving home, he knocked on his landlord's door and asked, where am I? The philosopher and psychologist William James offered to treat him by using hypnosis to quote-unquote run the two personalities into one and make the memories continuous, but the two identities could not be merged. Bourne returned to his wife in Rhode Island with almost no memory of his life as Albert. In an essay that James wrote shortly before treating Bourne, he argued that science would advance more rapidly if more attention was devoted to unclassifiable cases – wild facts that determine a closed and completed system of truth. Understanding splits in consciousness, he wrote, is one of the most urgent, is of the most urgent importance for the comprehension of our nature, unquote. Now, I wonder how many people back in the day just bailed on their families and then said that 
they couldn't remember or had amnesia. Like I'm just, there has to be at least one case. Um, I'm not saying that most of these people are, um, but I, I just, I just wonder um, how many kind of fudged the system a little bit. Um, the ones that were like knocking on the door, where am I kind of thing um, is quite confusing. I do remember a case with a guy who basically said that he was in a fugue. Uh, it's because he'd like rorted a company and gone on the run, left his family and when the the seven years was up where he couldn't be charged for fraud anymore or whatever, he returned and said he'd been in a fugue and it was a lie the whole time. So I guess you got to keep that in mind. But in Hannah's case, I unfortunately, she's 100% one of the anomalies where her mind suddenly just started working against her in her early 20s, which is also you got to keep in mind peak onset for a lot of um, psychological conditions. Now, according to the New Yorker, cases of fugue peaked in the 1980s. This was tied in with the satanic panic movement, which I'm not going to kind of get into. And a lot of people were coming forward saying that they had multiple personalities or that they'd suffered ritual satanic abuse, which ended up not, a lot of them ended up or most of them being false memories and a lot of people who were innocent went to prison and things like that. And um, unfortunately, as the New Yorker points out, the fugue state unfortunately got merged under the same umbrella as dissociative identity disorder, which is totally different and it's called it used to be called multiple personality disorder. And if you've ever seen someone, there was a really famous woman who was on Oprah like in the 80s or 90s, she's now dead and she wrote a um, kind of the formative book. It's not Sybil, who the movie is about. Um, I can't think it's something about wolves in the title of the book. Um, she spoke at length, if you ever watch her interviewed, about how she was sexually abused as a child and how she developed, you know, a 100 distinct personalities Um uh, it's too complex for my mind that's not particularly scientific kind of to even wade into. But according to experts, this heaping in of fugue with what was clearly false memories with the satanic panic and merging it with dissociative identity only muddied the waters and made things harder for people who were suffering from either that are two distinct psychological conditions. The New Yorker writes, quote, Richard Lowenstein, the medical director of the trauma disorders program at Shepherd Pratt in Towson, Maryland, may have worked with more fugue patients than any other psychiatrist in the country. He said that modern psychiatry and psychology still fail to pay much attention to the self or to the complexities of subjectivity. When he encounters people in fugues, often in emergency rooms, he finds it nearly impossible to treat them in that state. He said that in conversation, there's a quality of them running away from whatever you are trying to ask them. If you begin to hold on to them and try to get them to stay in one place, they go, they're gone, unquote. So it's what we talked about earlier. They felt like Hannah kind of had a memory of potentially being, feeling like she was being hunted. Like you've got to keep moving, which ties in with that, um, what they knew 120 years ago about them wandering. Hannah ultimately underwent therapy and she went to a number of different uh, psychiatrists and she even underwent hypnosis to try to get to the root cause of why this was happening and why this was happening to her. 
Her family said that she had had a, she was a happy girl growing up. There was no apparent trauma in her past. Um, and Hannah was kind of like, I don't understand why this is happening. She was wondering whether or not before the onset of the the one and only episode she'd had where she went missing for three weeks uh, in New York, when she was recovering from that, she was wondering whether or not she'd gone for a run and been attacked or hit over the head or something and it had bordered on um, because there was nothing she believed in her childhood or in her life, at least on the surface. And at 23, you're still not thinking as deep you have a lot of realisations once you hit 30, 35, like, believe me, um, I'm still continuing to have them. And I've probably had more in the last two years about myself than in the last 20 years combined. Um, and sometimes it just age and a bit of wisdom that comes with that makes you come to these conclusions naturally and there's nothing that can speed it up or anything like that but keep in mind Hannah was only 23 at the time um but she wasn't particularly stressed um when they asked her if she was stressed uh you know about starting the new job teaching she wasn't she wasn't under any additional stress to any other teacher um and she hadn't been dealing with any and um as I've discussed at length I've discussed these kinds of things on numerous episodes, um, including Asha Krema, um, where I talked a little bit about my own experience uh, with depression and anxiety. And really my takeaway has always been that the human mind is a mystery and it's fragile um, and we should care for it as best we can um, by filling it with good things, which is really hard in this day and age, unfortunately. Hannah was really hurt when she looked at coverage of her disappearance in the news and she saw people commenting saying that she was faking her disappearance and that it couldn't possibly be real, which is what I talked about earlier with Aaron Krasner from Columbia saying, you know, people just can't dig that deep in their own subconscious to understand that this could be a real thing. And she was actually so embarrassed by it, like she didn't want to show her face in public. She contemplated changing her name at some point because she was she was like the name Hannah Up. If anyone Googles it, they'll see this story and think, you know, that I'm crazy. Um, so ultimately life went on for Hannah and a year passed and Hannah ultimately left New York City. Uh, she left the job that she'd got there in Harlem and she went back to join her mum who by this point was living in an area of I believe um, Pennsylvania or it could be Maryland called Pendle Hill. Uh, they say this is quote-unquote Mecca for Quakers, which is the institution that her mum was very heavily into. And it's essentially a retreat uh, for people. And Hannah got a job there working in the kitchen and they do quite a lot of silent worship. Um, I don't think they see this meditation in the Quaker community. Uh, and she would attend daily worship and things like that. And she would really try to get back into her faith, I suppose. And while she was there, Hannah started dating a guy. Um, and he spoke later on after Hannah went missing to Rachel from the New Yorker. And he really felt that Hannah's whole life was about giving to other people, be it in her job, on in her downtime. She gave and gave, he said, basically to the point that there's literally nothing left. That's how he put it, quote unquote, and she departs from herself. Um, he said that 
she was always giving way more than she got from people. Um, and if a friend had a tiny little win in their life, um, no matter what it was or a tiny setback, he said she'd write them, you know, an actual card and send it to them, you know, no matter what it was, she was always kind of cheering people on. Um, and he, he believes that this could have contributed to kind of her mental decline. It, not really focusing on herself as much as other people and maybe their expectations of her. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. Those are my words, but I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so Hannah was there for about three years at Pendle Hill and she'd really moved away from teaching and she was just working in the kitchen and trying to get back to life and probably hoping that this was a one-off as they put it in the New Yorker and it wouldn't happen again. And she'd had some sort of episode and now she was back and things would be okay. But Hannah wanted to go back into teaching and she'd actually got really interested in Montessori schools, which I do have a bit of understanding of. Um, I know they're quite expensive to go to and they focus more on what you're good at and what you enjoy versus um, what you're kind of expected to do as part of your units at school Um, and she was hired as a teaching assistant at a Montessori school in Maryland and so she took up that job Um, and a woman called Maria Montessori set up the Montessori school program which still exists today Um, and she called it an education capable of saving humanity unquote at the time that she set it up And it really kind of nurtured what people were interested in and would lead to kind of a happier society. And Hannah really dove into this once she discovered Montessori schools with open arms. It really spoke to her in terms of her educational uh, interests, how she believed education should be. Um, I'm very much like kind of on that side as well Um, and that you should kind of follow what you enjoy um definitely because life is short and why would you not want to um and she pretty much learned everything there was to learn about the history of Montessori schools how they work and she wanted to dedicate her life to it and actually when she went missing that's exactly what she was doing she'd done it for you know a couple of years at that point um so Hannah's back in the education system and one that suits her more but then almost like clockwork on the first day of class when she was due to start at this Montessori school in the September um I think it was around 2014 or so um the first day of class exactly like the first episode in New York City four years before or three years before um it happened all over again that morning uh Hannah's Mum, Barbara, received a phone call from the police. Uh, They had been contacted when Hannah did not arrive to teach her first day of class in that September. And they had essentially um, found Hannah's purse, much like the first time around, uh, with all of her belongings in it, including her wallet and her phone. But they'd found it on a wooded footpath uh, in the kind of close-knit neighbourhood that she was living in at the time in Maryland. And her family and friends were very quickly, you know, thrown into the exact same nightmare that they'd been in a couple of years before and ended up driving down to Maryland to search. And by this point, when they arrived there, she'd been missing for 24 hours. 
with not hide nor hair of Hannah to be seen. So around the time uh, that Hannah had been missing for around 36 hours, the day after or the night after the morning she'd gone missing, um, at about 10.30 at night, Barbara's phone rang and it was an unknown number calling her and she answered the phone and all she heard on the end of the phone was mum and it was Hannah on the phone. Hannah, much like the first episode, had seemingly come to in or near a body of water. This time she was in a dirty creek uh, when she came to in a residential neighbourhood in Maryland, about a mile and a half from the school that she was due to start teaching at. She was, there was a shopping cart behind her and she didn't know, beside her, uh, next to the creek and she didn't know why that was there. Um, And... Basically, when Hannah, like, came to, it was described as everything kind of got sucked back in, like she suddenly knew where she was and what she was doing and she knew what to do. So she walked to the nearest kind of shopping area and she found a stranger and asked to use their phone and that was when she called her mum and to Hannah it seemed like no time had gone by at all but her mum said, you've been missing for almost two days, Hannah. Um, And Hannah's friends couldn't help but notice that the same things had preceded Hannah's fugue state episodes uh, on both episodes that had happened by this point. She'd had two very clear ones, uh, the one in New York, then a bunch of other little ones in New York. Seemingly she'd been okay when she'd gone to live with her mum and she worked at the Quaker retreat And then the exact same circumstances, she had disappeared on the first day of a new school year when she was due to start teaching at a new school she hadn't taught at before. And she had just come back from visiting her father on her annual trip, wherever that was in the world. And her friends talked to the New York Times about how it seemed like these two things were stressful triggers for her that would bring on these fugue states. Um, and even David Up kind of spoke to the New Yorker, although he's they seemed um, quite defensive, I guess, about Hannah and whether a fugue state contributed to her ultimate disappearance, which has been five years now, which we'll talk about on part two. Um, but he said that travel couldn't be a trigger for Hannah because that's what they'd always done and she'd been... She'd visited him in 25 different countries a couple of times each year um, and he said, quote, so it is normal, not disruptive, unquote, which is he was pushing back against theories that um, disruptive things in Hannah's life seem to bring on these episodes, which Marissa and I on MH370 episodes talked about whether we believe in uh, co- coincidences. In that instance, it was, do you believe that all of these things were happening in Captain Shah's personal life and then the plane happened to go missing hours after that? And Marissa said she does believe in co- coincidences, like to an extent, and as do I, but I know a lot of police don't believe in co- coincidences and I know a lot of psychiatrists and mental health experts don't believe in coincidences. And for this particular one, especially considering that she went missing on the exact same day of the year, a few years apart, right before she was starting, Judah started teaching at a new school on the morning of, I can't see that as a coincidence. It's, there's just no way. It has to be um, a stressor that she's not even aware of, even if she's saying that she's not stressed. Uh, to me, there's a simmering, there's something simmering under the surface that she's 
kind of hasn't come to terms with yet, whether it's just an anxiety of starting a new job that she kind of bottles up until it presents itself in this very unique way. I'm similar in the sense that I can handle stress and pressure and stuff like that. But if I don't, like I, I have a habit of bottling it up and not telling anyone until it gets really bad. Um, but that exhibits for me in like tension and generally like gut problems and things like that. And, um, you know, my doctors have said like it's it may not be a coincidence that um, usually like you've got the condition that I have Graves' disease in your system because it's like a genetic anomaly, but it's usually triggered by um, a stressful incident in your life or by a virus. And um, when my symptoms started um, up, it was directly after I'd had, like, I've talked about it pretty extensively, like the worst mental health bout of my life that went on for about a year, about seven years ago. And after that, they pretty much came up within a few months of that. Um, and they do say that stress plays, it's the massive, it's a massive part of keeping the condition under control. And I, I've learned that the hard way, especially the last year, but particularly this year, if I feel like even the tiniest amount of um, stress, I can't handle what I used to be able to, which is something else I've come to, had to come to terms with, which has been upsetting for me. Um, that I can't do a million things at once like I used to be able to and handle it and handle it and handle it. Um, I just can't without symptoms flaring up and my eyes flaring up really bad and um, sweating flaring up, which is still a major symptom that I deal with. Um, but I see it as Hannah exhibited the exact same kinds of internal issues uh, in a totally different way because everybody is different and the body completely reacts totally differently someone's immune system can go into overdrive and attack itself like me or it can attack your mind and when I wrap up this I'll kind of give an example of that in my own life um Hannah had much like what her friends were kind of saying about coming home from visiting her dad she would often felt be different and she'd written once in a campus newsletter for a campus newsletter at her university about how she'd returned from a trip to Ghana where David was working at the time and she wrote quote I thought I was coming home but was surprised at the longing for a new place that had grown so comfortable unquote so she felt I think we've all felt that coming home from a trip you know where you feel a connection with a place and suddenly you come home which is a relative term and you you don't feel like it is anymore because your mind has expanded you know a little bit but eventually Hannah did start her new teaching position in Maryland at the Montessori school um, and the following year she was offered a job that she just could not pass up it was a dream for her she was hired as a teaching assistant for preschoolers at a Montessori school on the island of St. Thomas, which is located in the US Virgin Islands in the Caribbean. It's pretty much a beautiful, idyllic, amazing uh, location, which I'll talk more about on part two. But obviously, this brings up a lot of factors, including is it safe for her to go there when she doesn't know anyone there? Um, and this could happen again. Are we going to you kind of hope that it doesn't happen again and just forge on and live our lives positively. Um, what will happen if something happens to her, I guess. And also 
the ethical and moral reality of do you tell your employer that there's something wrong with you? Um, and Hannah decided that she had to disclose her condition to her new school administrators and they were totally fine with it and accepting and honestly they probably didn't fully understand the gravity of it but she it would be so hard to explain it um to someone who just wouldn't understand um that you don't even know look I have this condition where I lose track of time for days at a time and you'd feel terrible I've had to do that the realization of that um, you know, my whole life I've had to, do you have, when you do a job application or you talk, have a job interview, is there anything that can impact your abilities in this new job? And this is the first year where I've been like, I think I have to disclose my condition. Um, because like just one day I may wake up and I can't see out of one eye or my eyelids are often swollen shut. And I feel I actually had this conversation with, um, a client of mine this week where, we had to have a Zoom call with another girl who didn't know me and I had told this this client knows about my condition because we Zoom and um, it's hard not to, I have to acknowledge it because my eyes bulge out of my head really bad and if people don't know about it, uh, they think that I'm on drugs or they might think I have Tourette's syndrome or something like that and um, I, ca- I can't control it. So I said to her, I'm, I'm worried as this girl is getting on Zoom, do I have to explain my condition. And she said, no, Felicity, you do not have to explain to anyone um, at all. And so I said, no, I'm not going to with this girl because it's not what I look like doesn't, um, it doesn't affect her job. And I don't have to explain it to her who I don't know. And so I'm going to take my client's advice, who luckily works in the mental health space, and not explain to people like I have felt a pressure to when people look at me weird or say, oh, like things like, oh, are you okay? Or why are you sweating so much? Like I've had random people in supermarkets say that or um, just commenting on the appearance of my eyes, which is, I guess, confronting for people. I'm not going to explain that to people anymore. And um, unless it affects your job, like you have to disclose it like Hannah did, which I feel like she did the right thing. Um, if you are suffering from something, especially when it's like looks superficial and does not affect your mind or your behaviour or anything like that, um, tell them to shove it. (laughs) But yeah, if it affects your physical abilities, which, you know, mine sometimes does now, um, I guess you have to. So when she disclosed her condition, as I said, they were totally fine about it, albeit I doubt they understood kind of the gravity of it and wouldn't know where it was leading to. Um, And Hannah said that she was moving to paradise, which if you look at pictures of St Thomas, I know it's becoming way more popular uh, which when you look at pictures of it, you just, it's idyllic. It's absolutely stunning. Like when you picture a perfect deserted island um, and we'll talk about it more on part two. So at this point when Hannah was going to move, um, her friends had kind of floated the idea with her half joking, uh, she, like, do you want to be microchipped? Like we would with a dog kind of thing. Um, and actually, they do recommend, as I said earlier, almost like ankle bracelets or you can even get like Apple Air tags now, which people put on people who have dementia or Alzheimer's um, just to keep tabs on them. You know, it's it's no different to find my iPhone or families following each other 
you know, on different maps online or programs that you can use. But Hannah did not want to go down this road. Uh, her mum said, quote, she didn't want to pursue it. She refused to be defined by this. And I chose to honour her decision. I had to be clear that I'm not living my daughter's life. She's living it and she needed to have the freedom to make choices, unquote, which is true. Like it's spot on. Um, and that's where I'm going to leave Hannah's story, part one, where we'll pick up, we'll talk a little bit about St. Thomas um, and we'll talk about Hannah moving to St. Thomas, the lead up to her ultimate disappearance um, and a few things that kind of stand out in the lead up to that, quite major um, hurricanes and things like that. Um, and then we'll talk about, you know, what could have, what could have happened to Hannah. But I wanted to wrap up by sharing a little bit about something that popped up again and again for me with this, um, because as much as she was a different age, uh, she was like 50 years older than Hannah at the time, um, that a different kind of neurological issue took hold, which is neurological and you can see it on scans. I I have experience in particularly dementia uh, because my gran had extremely bad dementia and, and she died when I was 18 and I, w- I was very close uh, to my grandparents and luckily I, I knew my grandma whole upbringing and I knew her for who she was. She was the most sharp, switched on woman always youthful, always immaculately dressed, hair perfect, makeup perfect, really, really um, presentation was important to her, how you spoke, um, how you kind of presented yourself, smart as a whip and she was a dressmaker by trade so she could, you know, do these kind of fine motor skills things that I I can't even like thread a needle guys it's an absolute disgrace my gran would be ashamed of me so she had her faults of course um everyone does she was a loving gran my gramps was the outwardly huggy one and he was amazing and I've spoken about him a number of times because he's kind of my as much as he's been gone for a long time now he's the pedestal that I set everybody against really um but my gran was very emotionally disconnected from her feelings and um pretty much from the time she was a child apparently uh she never showed her her emotions uh she had a difficult childhood uh she was not raised to suppress her emotions. Uh, her mother, my great granny, was very out there and open and laughed and things like that. But my gran uh, was not like that. She she didn't believe in crying and uh, showing weakness or and repressed a lot of her feelings her whole life. She was raised in Melbourne by a single mother in the 1920s who had three children by two different men and only the father of one of them is known. Uh, and my gran and her older sister do not have fathers listed on the birth certificates, which is a whole other journey. Me and my mum have gone down trying to get answers for my gran. Um, my gran was essentially raised by a stepdad of hers. She never knew her dad or who he was. She never talked about it. She would not let anyone bring it up. Um, and we, despite deep research and even hiring genealogists, um, for years, we've never been able to, unfortunately, get answers for Gran um, since she died. Me and my mum, which we've tried to do. 
But my gran, my mum was quite a free spirit growing up and uh, a bit of a lunatic at home and always emotional and crying and histrionic and yelling and showing all her emotions. And um, my gran was the complete opposite. And my mum really resented my gran for that growing up. She felt that she was cold and she used to say she'd look after you. She'd cook all your meals. She was the best cook. She was the best at everything. She'd bake. She'd care for you. Uh, your clothes were always clean. Your bed was always warm. Um, but you couldn't approach her with emotional problems. Uh, she just would shut them down and she shut her own down. Um, and my memories of her are, are much the same. She, uh, they're lovely. Um, my grand baking Anzac biscuits and um, I would be up the yard with my grandfather. He had a shed that he did woodwork in I'd sit there and watch him and when it was time for lunch my gran would sing my name up the yard and I can still hear it um to this day and actually I was coming out talking about your mind being a funny thing a few years ago I had a quite minor surgery it was only small and um I was coming out of the anesthetic and I could hear my gran singing my name the way she used to and I was started saying it back to her. And then I was going, Gran, Gran. And the, it was a nurse when I came to. It was a young nurse and she'd just been saying, Felicity, Felicity, you know, wake up. But I heard my Gran going, Felicity, like she used to up the yard. And the nurse said, when I woke up, I was crying. It's the mind is a crazy thing. But when my Gran would laugh and let herself laugh, she would cackle and she'd throw her head back. And when I was about 13, she suddenly overnight took a major turn and um, she was only in her 70s um, and she had always been so sharp and switched on. But in about the year or two preceding these changes, she had started to really detach and she normally was always in bed by 10 o'clock at night. She was really regimented and she was up at six and um, but she started going for afternoon naps, which really stood out to my mum. My mum works in the medical field and um, she kind of put it down initially to depression. A lot of people start taking naps, especially older people when they start getting depressed. But then she would often go quite quiet and she would sit in her sewing room and stare out the window while my gramps was out in the TV room um, watching TV. And then it very quickly started notching up where my mum knew something was up and she really kind of butted heads with my grandfather who as she says, kind of was in denial that this could be happening to the woman that he loved so much that he'd been married to for 59 years at this point. And they didn't quite make their 60th when my gramps unfortunately died. So it really started notching up. Um, and I used to stay at my grandparents for about three nights a week. Um, things at home were quite bad. Um, I had a violent brother who was on drugs and regularly had his drug addict friends around at the house. My mum couldn't control it um, and I was trying to finish school and I was a really good student and not into that stuff. And so my grandfather couldn't tolerate seeing it anymore and he decided, you know, because I had a room at my grand and grandfather's um, that I would stay there a few nights a week and ultimately it would lead up to staying there permanently and it was around the corner from my high school so it was actually closer than home. And I would just ride to school in the mornings and come home and it was an absolute haven for me um, when you consider the yelling and screaming and throwing things at home to go there where it was just calm. I still miss that. Um, yeah, to this day, I still look for that. Anyway, ultimately, um, Gran got worse and worse and she started doing all kinds of 
things um, and they started at small and became quite big and um, one time she made me a cup of tea but it was just hot water there was no tea bag in it and there was no milk in it and then she couldn't turn the stove on one particular time Um, and then she used lipstick to draw on her eyebrows instead of her eyebrow pencils which was horrible Um, and then uh, one day she called in my gramps and asked him why the sheets weren't fitting the bed because she was trying to make the bed and she was using bath towels to try to make the bed and didn't realise that they weren't sheets. And then one time uh, she, me and my gramps were watching TV in the in the TV room one, late one night and I looked up through the alcove that looked out into the kitchen and she lit I'll never forget it, backlit against the light of the stove that you can turn on that kind of leaves like a dim light was my gran completely naked, which I'd never seen that, like it was shocking to me, holding a laundry basket and just standing there like a ghost. My gramps used to get up and he was getting more and more tired and he he would get quite weepy and cry because of what was happening to Gran, but he refused to put her in a home and you could literally just watch him almost decaying. Um, And my mum used to say, gramps will die, it will kill him, um, looking after her. And um, she she was going, what am I doing? And she used to fight my gramps all the time and lash out at him and say, who are you? You're trying to kill me. It was exactly like the notebook. Um, and then basically one night we had them over for dinner to give Gramps a bit of a break. Um, they came over to my house, my mum's house, and um, Gran wandered out of away from the dinner table and um, we found her sitting in my dog's bed and she'd weed all throughout it and the wee was all through the laundry where the bed was. Um, and on top of that, she was rapidly losing weight and all through this GPs, always get a second opinion. They were saying she was depressed. My mum said, no, she's not. She ultimately um, took her for scans. She said she's clearly got dementia. And the brain scan showed that she had the onset of severe vascular dementia. And you could literally see on the brain scans, each one, her brain shutting off more and more and going into darkness. And it was just so tragic um, because my everyone used to joke that my grand would live till she was 120 because of just how switched on she was. We thought she'd make 100 and she was barely into her 70s and this had started happening. And one day uh, when I was about 15, my grandfather, um, who was 83 at the time, and he was regularly kind of upset, which was a new thing. I'd never seen him like that. He was always the rock and always smiling and always giving you hugs and he'd say, hi, doll, when you'd walk in and I could still kind of hear that. Um, he was on the phone to his nephew um, and he had a massive heart attack um, and died and uh, my gran was walking around just in circles uh, for a few hours until her carer came and um, I was at school and um, her carer came to shower her, who would come twice a week and found him and um, unfortunately um, he had had a number of heart attacks before and he was not um, this he was not coming back from this one and um, this was the final one and my mum and I went to the hospital and kissed him goodbye and told him what um, what a wonderful man he was and I gave him a kiss on his cheek and, and they wheeled him away and, and that was it. Um, 
So Gran had to go to her aged care home because her dementia was just progressing so rapidly that she would just sit in a chair slack-jawed. She was near anorexic. She couldn't even, she didn't know who anyone was. She could barely speak. Um, she couldn't utter words and her needs were full-time and we just, we couldn't look after her at home, even though we had her there back at mum's where I had to kind of move back to because my gramps was gone. And at his funeral, she was laughing, uh, which I think everyone knew how bad her dementia was. So no one judged her for it because she just couldn't understand. We had to sit her down and tell her that he was gone. And she said, who's that? Who's gone? And she just had no control over her mind. It was the worst thing I've ever witnessed. And Gran lived for about three years after Gramps died and she died when I was 18 and eventually dementia patients stop eating and they they can man they can they know enough to know they don't want to continue on which is kind of how they put it and so they they reject food in order to die um and she was pretty much on death's door with how skinny she was anyway and um when they called us to tell me and mum that she was she'd stopped eating and she wanted to go. Mum and I went down to say goodbye and um, much, much the same with, with Gramps and she was gone by the next morning um, and the rest of the family did not visit her in the care home the entire time because Mum's siblings said that she doesn't know. They said they're not wasting money on flowers because she doesn't know that they've bought flowers anyway, whereas my mum would go twice a week with beautiful flowers and my mum's got her faults but she always went to visit her. And so when mum and I would visit her in the care home, she would be sitting facing the garden in a big kind of reclining chair. And they often give dementia patients dolls, which my mum works in an aged care home with dementia patients. And they give them dolls, baby dolls to kind of care for. It's part of like their therapy. And she, she would wave out into the garden and she would say, Les, Les, I can see you. And Les was my grandfather. And I used to look at mum and mum would say, do you think she can really see him? Like, we just don't know, you know, but she would basically be unable to speak. And then she'd have these moments of lucidity. And as I was reading Hannah's story, it all, these moments of lucidity and how the mind works, I just made this connection, you know, because she would be in a chair with her head back, slack-jawed, couldn't speak, and you wouldn't have heard her speak for two weeks, or no one would have. And then one day my mum went to visit her alone and she was telling me about it later and she sat next to Gran and she started crying, my mum, just seeing her mum like this. And my Gran's head suddenly snapped up and she put her hand in my mum's hand and she said, why are you crying, doll? I'm okay. And then her head went back and she was slack-jawed and drooling again. And my mum said, I've never seen such a moment of lucidity in my whole professional life. Another time um, when she was getting quite bad dementia, but it wasn't as bad as that and she was still at home with my gramps, she suddenly turned to my mum while my mum was driving her on an appointment and she said something that came as a shock to my mum because she never talked about her upbringing, her father, you couldn't approach her with anything. She never showed weakness. She never said she was sad, depressed. She never cried. She turned to my mum and she said, nobody will ever know how sad not knowing who my father was has made me throughout my life. And that's all she said. And it's just tragic. And my grand's name was Laurel 
and um, we've tried to get answers for her and unfortunately they are gone and there's no father on the birth certificate and great granny took that to the grave and I don't believe my gran ever knew who he was. There are family rumours and he probably was a married man. Uh, but gran did remember a man coming to visit until she was about three and um, that was probably him. Um, but there's a, a little bit more to that story and maybe one day I'll share it, maybe on a Patreon-only episode, which I'll be starting where I go around Melbourne and stuff like that. Um, but the whole thing makes me so sad and I've always wanted to get answers for my gran and I think the only way forward is to get DNA done um, with my mum maybe and see if there's some sort of hit, if anyone has any ideas on that. Like she'd be 50% of my gran's DNA, so she'd have 25 what would it be, like a small portion of whoever this man was? But really the degradation of the mind, it's such a tragic thing, especially when you've got so much to offer and your mind is so switched on, not being able to trust your mind. My gran would have been devastated with how she ended up. She was married to my gramps for 59 years by the time Gramps died and they were soulmates truly when the notebook came out um it came out right after they were both gone and I watched it and I felt like they'd stolen Gran and Gramps' story uh there's so many elements of it that I haven't even talked about and I rang my mum and I said you have to watch the notebook and so she watched it and she rang me and she said it's almost like they stole Gran and Gramps' story, you know. Um, and my Gramps loved my Gran so much and he set such a great example for what a man is and what a great male figure is. Um, he's a, He was a benchmark. Um, but my mother works in aged care and she says it's shocking to her over the last decade or two seeing a major rise in people developing early onset dementia. They're a lot younger than they ever were before and she's worked in the field for 50 years now. It's 50 years this year. And um, she has she has two that are in their 50s with advanced dementia um, in the dementia ward of her care home. And um, she believes it's the increased, as well as studies show it's the increased stress people are under um, with the how much it costs to just live these days, uh, technological stresses, people being just constantly being bombarded with bad news and with advertisements and lights and also the probably the introduction of bad foods, processed foods. The rates of, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, are skyrocketing and, and it's really sad. But what I wanted to say really was, when Gran was diagnosed with vascular dementia and he, her neurologist spoke to her family, including my mum, about who she was and her life and really wanted to get to the root of it and talk about her as a person and not just an old person who's a number, um, when they discussed kind of what she was like, he said that that's a, that was a commonality that he saw, that people who didn't let out their feelings or push down their feelings and... He found that a lot of his patients had been like that and had developed dementia. Um, and I, I thought of that when I was talk, talking about how one of Hannah's friends described her as Hannah land, you know, everything's perfect and everything's fine. Now, I'm not saying Hannah had dementia. She's a bit young for that. Um, but the mind is a very fragile thing um, and my 
Gran always pushed down her emotions and pretended things were okay. Um, and this neurologist, and that's just his opinion, believes that she held it all in ultimately to her detriment. And that's why me and my mum always say <laughs> that we're raving lunatics with our emotions because we're trying to counteract dementia. So if you feel something or you feel like things are bottling up, please just talk to someone, even if you just turn on an app on your phone and talk to yourself. I, it's so helpful. Um, even just doing this podcast, I come out with things that I've never said out loud to people and I feel like it's out and it's not in my body anymore. Um, please just talk to someone, even if you make a really good friend online, if you're alone and you don't have many friends or if you have judgmental friends, there are people out there, there's random groups you can join with people who are like you, you will find them, even if it just lets that valve off a little bit to let a little bit of that pressure off, just do it, even if it means talking to your cat or your dog and being like, oh, you know, just let it let it out a little bit and don't let it bottle up and bottle up and bottle up. And that's not what I'm saying happened with Hannah Rump, but I was just saying that this has kind of been my experience and how I, I perceive, you know, a lot of things. So I will be back with part two uh, in the coming days and I will share none of myself on that. Some of you may be glad and um, I will be back then. Um, it's a busy week coming up, but I will not leave you hanging too long when it comes to part two. On part two, we're going to talk about had a moving to St Thomas, a little bit about St Thomas and the circumstances surrounding um, her disappearance and a little bit more about dissociative fugue states. So stay tuned. I hope you're enjoying it. Head to the website, unknownpassagepodcast.com. I'll put up Hannah's episode page at some point early this week. Become a patron. It links off the website. There's different tiers. Zero to five or one to five dollars a month. You get a shout out at the start of the episode. Um, and five dollars and over a month you get a shout out and you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode or in this instance it was Jody saying something to do with the ocean uh, which I feel like this is it definitely comes back to bodies of water over and over again which I think was probably something that was really central to something that Hannah loved um yeah so I will be back and I'll talk to you soon